All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to It Has to Be Said with Justin and Joe. This is a change, and I guess this is the first episode ever of It Has to Be Said uh, with Justin and Joe. Uh, I just want to give a little history and context for those of you listening. Back in around April, I guess, of 2020, right after we did our conference, Joe and I realized how much we miss each other and miss seeing each other and talking so much that we wanted to do a podcast. And so we did Rants with Justin and Joe. But we thought it was time for a change, and we changed the title that it has to be said with Justin and Joe, which is indicative of our work, kind of been a theme throughout our careers that we wanted to talk about important things. And uh, our colleagues have written a book with the title that has to be said, so that came about. The other thing is, during COVID times, we had a lot more time uh, to dedicate to things like podcasts and online CEUs, but it's getting better. Uh, at least here in the United States and here in California. And so we have less time because once again, we have to concentrate on research and clinical practice and all that stuff. So another change that's happened with it has to be said with Justin and Joe is we're not going to do it twice a month anymore. We're just going to do it monthly, once a month, because we still love having these conversations. We still love having uh, our guests on and learning from them and educating the field and providing opportunities for training for people at no cost since it's a podcast and we're not charging for it. And so that's a important to our mission, but we do have other responsibilities and just can't commit to two times a month uh, anymore. So those are the two big changes. We have a name change. Unfortunately, we can't think of a catchy jingle that my uh, six-year-old and uh, five-year-old can sing for us, but uh, we have this new name and, uh, and we're going down once a month. So if anyone has any kids that have catchy jingles that they're singing, you know, with it has to be said in it, we're, we're ready for it. Send it our way. Yeah, we, we've, I've tried for a long time, Joe. It's, it's really hard to, <laughs> it's hard to get. It's not, it's not as catchy uh, for, for that kind of song. But there's one thing that's going to stay uh, similar, and that is Joe will tell you all the boring stuff. Yeah, it's, it's what I do. I bring you the boring stuff. So if you're catching this live and you want to ask questions, it's really driven by the people that are here and the questions that you want to ask the, the our wonderful guests that are here. Please use the Q&A option because that signals to us that there's a question and we can make sure that we get to it. If you throw it in the chat, sometimes it just gets lost amongst the rest of it. Um, so please make sure you get your questions in. Uh, we want this to really be a discussion, not necessarily everyone just trying to chatting at you. So very interactive. Get your questions in. If you're listening to this via the podcast, well, sorry, uh, try to catch it live sometime. So you make sure that you can get the questions in for the people that come on and chat with us. Uh, if you want CEUs for this episode or any other, uh, the podcast is free, but uh, it, the CEUs are available for purchase and, and download at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Just keep track of the opening and the closing words because you'll be asked that at checkout. Our first word, our opening word is salt. Uh, and so make sure you keep track of those and then you can get your CEUs. I'm, I'm guessing some people might have an idea of the closing word, but we'll see. Uh, with that, I think that's all the boring stuff.
I try to get through it as fast as I can, given how boring it is. Yeah, it's like that, that commercial, the fine print that you just have to talk about really quickly. Uh, yep. um, so we are honored to have two, uh, two guests with us today to talk about this topic, a topic that we believe doesn't get talked about as much as it should be. And that's uh, Bobby Newman and Jessica Couchy. And uh, as always, we know who they are, and, uh, but we know some of our guests don't know who they are. So we are not our guests, our people listening don't know who they are. So if you guys would just take a moment and introduce yourselves and how you came about uh, interested in the topic of, of sex as it relates to individuals with developmental disabilities or intellectual disabilities or ASD, that would be terrific. And Jessica, why don't you start? Okay, hi. Um, I am a, a third year, I guess I can say that now, uh, Endicott PhD student. I work under the advisorship of Peter Gerhardt. I have worked in uh, ADA and autism spectrum disorders for longer than I like to tell people, uh, just over 20 years. And this was never at all what I thought I was going to do or, or sort of end up being my soapbox. Um, I worked with a lot of young kiddos for a long time and then they turned into adolescents and adults and I got the chance to see the things that our field did really well um, in teaching some of those young kiddos and also the things that we did not do really well um, in teaching some of those kids when they were young. And unfortunately, I think teaching about sexuality is, is one that falls into that latter uh, category for sure. Um, and so when I started to think about all the places that I think that really matters in life in terms of social interactions and safety skills and just general quality of life for adults. Um, I was a good behavior analyst and looked into all of that in terms of research and found out that we actually don't have a lot of really great research in this area. We have a lot of research that says we need to do this really well and it's really important and we don't have enough that tells us how to assess these skills, how to teach these skills, how to talk about these skills. Um, and so somehow I decided that that was gonna turn into my professional soapbox and maybe I can contribute to us getting better uh, as a field at dealing with this terribly horrible taboo hard to talk about area of life so uh, that's how I ended up here. And I am Bobby Newman. Um, I've actually been at this since the 80s. Um, I began my work splitting my time between developmental disabilities assistance and working with the New York City Crime Victims Board uh, through the New York City Police Department, which unknown to me would wind up shaping the course of my career because having backgrounds in both developmental disabilities and particularly the autism spectrum disorders and uh, law enforcement, I became the person that they called whenever there was a person with a developmental disability who had somehow been involved in any kind of uh, criminal activity, uh, often as the victim, uh, sometimes mistakenly in a story that I'll probably tell later, um, as a perpetrator. I have been fortunate enough to do this work all over the world. Um, I worked training the police department in, uh, in Japan and Tokyo, where I created a few international incidents, but uh, fortunately nothing that has led to any you know, active hostilities. Um, in Canada, in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, in England, and all over the United States. I'm currently the Executive Director of Clinical Services for Proud Moments ABA. Uh, I've adjuncted at a few colleges along the way. Um, just tried to keep myself as busy as possible for these last 30 plus years. 
And once again, we're, we're so grateful for you guys to volunteer your time on, a, I guess it's a Wednesday night and uh, come talk to us about this. So thank you uh, for that. Um, I'm gonna start with the first question, but encourage those of you who are attending live to just start throwing in your questions as soon as you have it, because you have uh, both Bobby and Jess uh, who are here to talk and, and want your questions answered or want to know more about what you specifically want. Put it in the Q&A uh, section. Uh, my first question has to do is, why do you think the topic of sex and sexuality as it relates to ID or DD or ASD is so rarely discussed, uh, so rarely like one of the main topics that's getting talked about? I know that, you know, there's this, uh, the SIG that has been started and that's great. And I saw another conference is happening in a week or two. And I think that's great. Then people should be attending that. But overall, it's not been talked about, or at least I feel it's not been talked about as much or discussed or researched. Why do you feel it's like that? And how do we go about changing that? Um, <clears throat> Jessica, if you don't mind, I'm gonna start. There is a very um, infantilizing attitude towards people with developmental disabilities. And in fact, it actually goes both ways. I have seen both um, infantilization. I remember very clearly when I was gonna be opening a residence for people with developmental disabilities and looking through the files and just kind of thinking out loud. I always joke about this particular incident where I said, oh man, nobody here has had any sex ed. I'm gonna to have to do sex education. And it was one of those moments where the oxygen just left the room <clears throat> and I looked around the room and everybody, you know, I always joke about this. I said, we're gonna to need to do some sex ed, but apparently what came out of my mouth was Luca Brazzi from The Godfather. You know, we need to throw babies into furnaces because that was <clears throat> the way everybody reacted. And very quickly, one of the mothers said, my son doesn't think about that. To which with my lack of an internal filter, I blurted out, your son is 22. He doesn't think about anything, but um, there was that moment of caution and silence. I also think back even to when I was a kid, I remember watching an episode of, I think it was LA Law. And uh, on that show, there was a man who had a developmental disability who worked in the law office who wound up being mistakenly accused of having committed a rape. And the police had picked him up. He, mis he had been acting very guilty because with his first paycheck, he had gone to a strip club and he had seen sex was, you know, in his mind. So he thought he was guilty. He didn't understand what he was being accused of. But that particular episode also helped to explore the idea that many people have the opposite idea, that people with developmental disabilities are sex offenders. And forgive me, Jessica, I'm going to have to steal one of Peter's stories here. Uh, Peter one time was talking about opening a residence also. And you frequently get the various objections related to not in my backyard. But Peter tells a wonderful story of someone who finally said what they were thinking and said something to the along the lines of, well, what if one of them gets an erection? And Peter had a great answer, you know, very professional. You can't give a guy like me an opening like that. But he was very professional as he explained how it would be handled. But he sort of joked, you know, what he really envisioned in his mind was the guy spinning around like the Tasmanian devil from the Looney Tune cartoons, bouncing over the fence and impregnating somebody as he landed on them and then spinning down the street. We have this dual thing going on. <clears throat> on the one hand, infantilizing people they're not competent to make these decisions. Uh, they don't think about that. They shouldn't think about that. And then on the other side, oh, they're all sex crazed. Um, and somewhere in there, people just, again, they have these two polar opposite ideas that they somehow manage to hold simultaneously. 
and it gets people very uncomfortable. Nobody wants to talk about it. And then we have the nerve to be surprised when anything goes wrong because big surprise, the people uh, that we're talking you know, about have the same hormones, the same developments, the same desires as everybody else. We avoid teaching and then we have the nerve to be surprised when things uh, go amiss. So I think that's somewhere in there the problems are. And forgive me, let me hand it back to you, Jessica. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more with both sides of that. The only thing I would add is I think we're not great at teaching about sex anywhere. Um, I think in public education, we're not great at this. I think there is still in so many, I mean, I, I live just outside of Toronto. Um, there's still a lot of pushback for the types of things that should be taught in, in public education about sexuality. There's still families that, you know, that won't talk about sex with their kids. There are still teenagers that don't know the basics of some of this stuff. And so, you know, we have a whole Me Too movement across North America that has nothing to do with autism, right? This is complicated stuff. And I don't think we're great at, I don't think we're great at it anyway. Um, and so I think, you know, on top of that, you add in biases that people have about intellectual disabilities and we're just mess. We're no good at it. <laughs> I'm getting rusty. I didn't didn't get to the unmute quick enough there. Uh, wonderful points, and and I think it it goes to the second part of what Justin was asking. Like, what do we do about some of these problems? Uh, now that we definitely know that there is a problem here, and I want to try to tie that into some of the questions that are rolling in because they're rolling in rather quickly. Um, and how do how early should we start the discussion of planning for and the implementation of sex education uh, in the autism and, and intellectual de developmental disability population? Well, as I so often do, I'm going to steal from Peter again and talk about the five-year rule. Anything someone is going to need within the next five years, let's uh, start working on that now. And as someone who has done a great deal of consulting in schools, I cannot tell you how frequently I've been called in because there have been difficulties with somebody who, let's say, was touching people inappropriately um, or the mundane things. She needs to learn to start wearing a bra. When? Last year. And I cannot tell you how often I have walked through public schools with biohazard cans on my shoulder because nobody ever bothered to prepare anybody for menstrual care. Uh, we need to be starting very, very young. And again, five-year rule at the very least uh, in terms of getting people started. And I think also just a shift in attitude. One of the things that I've done in the last few years was I worked with a couple. Uh, he was diagnosed on the autism spectrum. She had trisomy 21, and they were married and living in a group home, which was totally unprepared for this. As I went to the home and was informed by the manager, well, we're only allowed to have side hugs here in the residence. And forgive me, I didn't even know what a side hug was. So that had to be explained and demonstrated for me. And this was a couple, they had their own little wing of the, uh, of the residence, you know, cordoned off from everybody else. But there actually was an issue where, again, forgive me, I'm not always the most diplomatic guy in the world. I had to say to the residence manager, let me see if I get this straight. You want them to go rent a hotel room every time they're gonna get busy? And that pretty much was the rule in terms of uh, there just really hadn't even been a provision for the idea of a couple living in the uh, residence. 
So yes, education from earlier, but also, you know, forgive me, a sea change in terms of an attitude of what's possible and what we need to be planning for. Um, I think about a lot of sexuality skills in a very, very broad way. So I think there's a lot of things that we expect of adolescents um, to be able to do. Now, you should be able to understand consent. You should be able to, you know, behave online in appropriate ways. You should, you know, all of these sort of components. Um, but we never taught those people as kids, you know, how to functionally protest in a way that people listen to you. And we never honored that in them. Um, or we never taught you how to make choices, you know, and talk about the things that you like and the things that you don't like. Um, you know, you if you learn how to play apps online where you're accepting friends and, you know, playing with other people online when you're nine or 10, I, I mean, I don't, I obviously don't have research on this, but logic tells me that you are going to understand, you know, so how to appropriately and safely manage a dating app when you're 18 or 19. And so a lot of things I think that are, are not overtly sexuality skills really help us get to them. And we need to teach those things early all the time. Um, you know, I, I mean, yes, of course, Peter's five-year role, but I, I think a lot of those things mean, you know, you're teaching bathroom independence skills as early as you possibly can. Um, and that might be to a four or five-year-old. Um, you're teaching menstrual care really early because again, I don't want to have spent all this time teaching all this bathroom independence skill and now have someone that has to come in once a month, you know, to help you manage that because we never taught that part. So I think a and this is, this is why I think ABA is so uniquely positioned for this, because if we take some of those complex skills like safety, like consent, and break them down in the way that behavior analysts are so very good at, all those early skills, you know, start to make sense. And they start to be able to see those as building blocks. And so they start to give us a starting point that is maybe a more appropriate starting point for a seven or eight or 10 or 12 year old um, than you know, what we, what we typically envision as a sexuality skill. And you raise an excellent point there. If I could just piggyback on this, uh, you've raised a really wonderful example in terms of bathroom usage. I find that I almost always in my talks on this wind up giving impromptu lessons on how to use a urinal. Uh, we just have a field of people who haven't learned to use a urinal appropriately. And uh, I cannot tell you how frequently I have done consults, walked into places, and young men have their pants and their underwear around their knees or around their ankles at the urinal. And forgive me, I swear to you on all that is holy, there is no bigger sign that you could hang up that says, hi, I have a developmental disability, please take all my money and abuse me, than to drop your pants and your underwear around your ankles or your knees at the urinal. And we don't often as a field make really good discriminations, or we, I should take that back. We don't teach good discriminations. So we're busy uh, telling people, make eye contact, ask questions, be interested. Not at the urinal spike. That's not the time that people are looking for social contact. But when we don't teach those distinctions, then we have the nerve to be surprised when, again, things go wrong. We haven't taught because either we're too uncomfortable or we just didn't think it through fully. And we trusted that it would somehow be learned by osmosis or something. And forgive me, one other dopey story here. Um, 
I was at a program that I was, we had a school, preschool, adult services, we had everything there. And one of the adults came into my office and knocked on the door and said, can I borrow the headphones that you use when you're at the pistol range? Now, you know, again, from my days with the police, I still have a hobby that I shoot there. It's all licensed, it's all legal, it's whatever. And I said, I'd lend you anything of mine, but in order to go shooting, you need to have a license, you need to have training. You're not going shooting, are you? And he said, no, I've got tickets for the, and forgive me, I'm 53 years old. I have the tickets for the insert generic pop princess name here, concert at the Nassau Coliseum. And I immediately thought, oh, okay, well, I understand not wanting to hear that. Um, But just out of curiosity, why did you spend your hard-earned money to buy concert tickets for something you don't want to listen to? And if you just want to watch, I mean, you could do that on TV, you could do whatever. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. She is best friends with, insert the name of some other pop princess. And what's going to happen is after the show, I'm going to sneak backstage and then I'm going to introduce myself to her. And then she's going to introduce me to her friend who's going to become my girlfriend and come to my birthday party. And he really thought that's the way it all worked. And again, I can't blame him because my son, for example, is 21 years old. He'll be 21 in January, I should say. He grew up in the iCarly era and Victorious and those TV shows, for those of you who recognize that. And wasn't that the plot of every episode, that there was a guest star of the week and through some hijinks or other, they became friends with the guest star. And it's also the plot of I Love Lucy for you older people out there. Uh, Every week there was some guest star that Lucy wound up interacting with, whether it's Gary Cooper or Harpo Marx or just off the top of my head, people I remember. And if nobody has ever taught you, you know what, that's not reality, um, you may get that idea. And again, big shocker for those of you who know me, I hate romantic comedy movies, not just because they're stupid and boring, but because, and forgive me, personal opinion, they demonstrate behavior that would more accurately be described as stalking and illegal behavior and totally dismissing people who are telling you, no, I'm not interested, thank you very much. Uh, that's modeling some pretty crappy behavior. And if we're not teaching people, you know, reality here, fantasy entertainment over there, okay, on us that we haven't taught it. But now, again, moron like me, I get put into situations where I have to go to my staff and say, okay, what's a Tia and a Tamara? Like, why? Because I got the FBI on the phone and one of our guys has been very good at working his way up the ladder and is now on a stalking charge with Tia and Tamara. Um, please somebody explain to me what I'm talking about. Nobody ever taught him that that's not okay. And the media that he was watching demonstrated that it was. So again, just something else that we need to be very, very careful of. And forgive me, I'm talking here with my hat from having had to be involved in law enforcement as well as working in developmental disabilities. I would make the same uh, parallel to pornography um, in terms of reality versus what's actually happening um and and i think that's that's another you know that's probably beyond the scope of tonight but that's another huge you know safety rabbit hole in this field of if you're not getting your sex education from a peer group or from friends um and you're very comfortable with you know online activity and computers then that's probably where you're getting a lot of your sex education and somebody needs to at least be able to tell you, you know, what's, what's legal, 
what's not legal, um, and and you know what to expect out of early sexual relationships, which is probably not necessarily what you're stumbling upon. Um, and so I think that you know that's another huge risk in the last I don't know ten or fifteen years or so that's just um, so scary and so un unmanageable. Um, and for the families that say, oh well, I won't I won't let my kid watch porn, and we have all kinds of controls on and. I don't think that's the right answer. I think um, they're probably gonna find a way around that uh, or find it somewhere else. And I would argue, you know, as long as you're as long as you're now involved in something that is legal, so you should. I mean, if that, you know, you you should be allowed to and able to access, you know, the same things that any other adult is able to access. Um, so instead of restricting, perhaps educating is a better uh, is a better way to look at that. And you raise another excellent point there in terms of even with the best controls, it is impossible to avoid porn. Um, even for people who think their children are watching uh, childish things. Forgive me if I'm breaking anyone's bubble here and I'm really sorry to have to do this, but if you're on YouTube long enough, you will find Dora the Explorer porn. You will find Barney porn. You will find Thomas the Tank Engine porn. Someone has taken the time and trouble to make this stuff. And sooner or later in the YouTube links, things come up. And again, I have to steal from Peter, who told a very wonderful story of vocational training and says to somebody, what do you want to do when you grow up, you know, when you're you know, ready to do the job here? Oh, I want to deliver pizza. Okay, that's a pretty good one. You know the neighborhood pretty well. You know how to do Yeah, the good job. I think that's realistic. This is something we could really look at. Just out of curiosity, why pizza delivery boy? Well, I was watching this video and this pizza guy delivered to the sorority house and they didn't have enough money to pay him. So they had to come to some other arrangement. Now I've had a lot of jobs in my life. I worked at the Rocky Horror Show. I worked at uh, animal hospitals. I did all kinds of fun stuff. I was never delivering pizzas. But I'm willing to bet a few bucks that doesn't happen too often in a pizza delivery person's life. Um, but again, under that heading of if nobody teaches you the difference between reality and what you're seeing on the screen, small wonder that you then wind up going down a rather difficult rabbit hole. So you raise another excellent point here. This is amazing. Like this is this is exactly like it started as me and Justin being just wanting to hang out with each other, but now experts come on and just talk about expert level things, and we just get to sit back and learn. Like this is absolutely wonderful, uh, and just there's nothing beyond the scope. We intentionally have a a, a broad topic, um, so you all can take it wherever you want, or the questions get to take it wherever you want. Uh, and, and just you, you touched on this just a little bit, uh, and there's a question about it, so I want to bring that in so you all can respond to it as well. Um, given the varied cognitive abilities of individuals with developmental disabilities, how do or can practitioners approach this topic while balancing consent, assent, uh, and as a result, protecting individuals from actions they may not want to engage in? A lot to unpack there. I mean, I can start. Uh, the first answer is, yeah, there's no easy answer to that. There's no great, well, you just do this and you check this box and you teach this thing and then ta-da, off you go. They're gonna be safe and you know, happy forever and this is gonna be fine. I mean, I, I think it's so 
complex and it's so complicated. My, and I don't have an answer. Um, I hope Bobby does. That's why I wanted to go first in case he wants to go back and say, okay, Jocelyn, I have nothing else to add to that. Um, but what I would say is we're behavior analysts. We are really good at taking big complex things that occur in multiple settings under all kinds of different contingencies and with all kinds of different stimulus control and breaking those things down into components and into separate skills and systematically looking at how we teach those. And we have the power to do that on an individualized basis. So I don't know what your learner needs. Um, they probably need all kinds of things, but really you're just talking about, you know, skill acquisition. Bobby talked about, you know, discrimination. I mean, we're talking about things that are very much in our wheelhouse if we think of them like behavior analysts. And so I think, you know, I, for me, I, I run a, a practice, an ADA practice, and, you know, I look at, okay, I know this learner, how do they learn best? Are they a strong visual learner? Can I turn this into a sorting task? Can I turn this into a BST type thing? We're gonna watch some videos and then practice and role play and have feedback. Are we gonna play some cool, not cool? You know, I, and probably in many cases we're doing all of those things. Um, and so I think, I think we do know how to do this better than we necessarily think we do sometimes. Um, and the only other caveat to that is I think remembering that we have to continue to do this because all of the rules around, I can't remember the whole question, but you know, all of the rules around consent and assent and all of those pieces, they look different in a five-year-old than they do in a 10-year-old. They look different in a 15-year-old. They look very different once you're of legal age. Um, and so, you know, you have to continue to come back to these things. You have to remember what that point of reference is, what that frame of reference is, and make sure that you come back to that. And as adults, we're probably not the best guess at that frame of reference. Um, we, you're out of touch. Even if you think you're not, you, you are out of touch. You are not using the right slang. You are not watching the right shows. You are not using the right apps. You, you don't know. Um, and so make sure that what you're, what you're balancing that against is the environment and the culture and the, the social group that those learners are actually gonna be contacting. That's all, I, there's no magic wand. Maybe Bobby has one, that would be great. I'm gonna get my paper ready just in case. Well, I wish. Um... But there are resources and guides out there, so to speak. And let me give you two ends of the spectrums. Um, <clears throat> there's a very concretely written book that I'd like to start with for certain learners. It's called Taking Care of Myself. Terrible title. Um, it starts off with hygiene and things like that. So, uh, you know, again, that's where the taking care of myself comes from, even though eventually it does talk about masturbation, which makes everybody giggle when they look at the title. Um, but this is a very concretely written book, for example. What's a private part? Anything covered by a bathing suit? Who's allowed to see me naked? Here's a list. Very concrete, no superlatives, nothing to gossip about, as George Carlin would say. Here's the you know sort of black and white rules surrounding conduct and things that we need to consider. Now we go to the other end. One of my own certifications in sex education is in something called Our Whole Lives which is a curriculum that was created by the Unitarian Universalist Church and the United Church of Christ, if I remember correctly. But this curriculum is nothing but shades of gray. I don't think there's a single rule in any of that. Somewhere between the two, there is the appropriate level for your student. What I frequently say is you may have to start with 
taking care of myself and make it a little less black and white, or you might have to start with our whole lives and make it a little bit more black and white. But somewhere on this spectrum, there are things to help you in terms of guiding what you need to teach. And to Jessica's point, this is our wheelhouse. We're good at this. We know how to teach particular skills. It's just a matter of knowing what skills we need to uh, talk about. But something I would really emphasize, and forgive me if this is gonna make me sound a little strange, I don't trust spoken answers. So just to make this concrete, when I have students who are getting ready to travel train independently, when I had a school that I was doing this with, there was Mike, Mike was the bookkeeper. Mike worked in the bowels of the building, nobody ever saw him. That made him perfect for me as an offender because what I would do when people were getting ready to do travel training is I would have somebody hit me on the walkie talkie when this particular student was going into the bathroom and I would then prompt Mike the bookkeeper to go in and be inappropriate or say something inappropriate, let me be honest there. And if my student did not come screaming, running out of the bathroom, I knew I had more training than I needed to do. Now he could tell me what he was supposed to do if somebody approached him and made some sort of indecent proposal or what have you, but whether he would actually do it, I don't trust until I see him actually do it. So we're behavior analysts, we look at observable behavior. I wanna see observable behavior demonstrated. Now, this is just one example of being able to discriminate when you're being approached in an appropriate manner and what do you do about it? But this was all a matter of what we had to teach. And it started from very concrete concepts within taking care of yourself and then grew into this very complex and I am very sad to say real life example. And forgive me, I always, I'm a big fan of classical literature. If you've ever read Flowers for Algernon, you, you see this particular phenomenon. For those of you not familiar with the novel, it's written from the standpoint of a person with a mild to moderate intellectual disability, and they get an experimental procedure that increases their intelligence exponentially. Their emotional life has to catch up, but they go from being mildly intellectually to moderately intellectually delayed to being a super genius. And then of course, unfortunately regress, it turns out the procedure is not stable. But while he's in his state where he's uh, you know, still intellectually disabled, we hear about his friends. He works at a bakery, sort of supported employment. And these friends take him out dancing and they're tripping him on the dance floor in front of the girls and they're giving him wax fruit to eat. And you and I, as the reader, we're getting a little sick as we're listening to this or as we're reading this, knowing these aren't really his friends. These are people who are abusing him. But to somebody, who's never been taught and is really just happy for any kind of social contact. Uh, there's a book on Amazon, I forget the title, but I think it's The Perfect Victim. It's something along those lines where it describes people, I think it was written for people with Asperger's syndrome, uh, but it described how unfortunately some of our guys are just perfect victims in terms of their sometimes lack of social understanding and therefore a lack of understanding about how they may be being taken advantage of. and. Not easy concepts, but we can get there. We do need to start, however, sometimes at a much more basic level. I, I want to reiterate, I just love uh, listening to both of you talk and, and the stories you're saying. Uh, Bobby, uh, the only thing I can remember of LA Law was the one where uh, the person, the woman, I think it was a woman, uh, fell in the elevator shaft. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, one and I've ever since I've always checked the door to make sure the elevator 
is there. I just remember that as a young kid, kid watching that and being terrified of elevators uh, not being there. Um, and I love the point of making sure not, not them saying it, but actually engaging in the behavior. I remember teaching uh, long ago uh, children stranger abduction skills, and you could get that somewhat good, but as you increased uh, the provocativeness of it, uh, it fell apart. So do you want candy? Kid would run away. You want this? Kid would leave. You want this? But if you gave her a Blink-182 concert ticket, she was going in that, in that car, and so you have to really look to see what's going to happen under natural and real uh, conditions. Um, we do a wonderful job, I should say, very often of teaching people to be overly compliant. Yeah. Uh, we are so busy teaching people to follow directions that sometimes, unfortunately, we forget all directions from all people aren't to be followed. Uh, just because Simon says doesn't mean that we're actually supposed to do it. And, you know, teaching self-advocacy skills. You know, I remember back to the first uh, videos I watched of the Lovas film. Some of you will remember this. Maybe it's keys, you know, so teaching the kid, you know, maybe it's a mouse, maybe it's a refrigerator, and finally the kid blows up. Maybe it's keys. Uh, we seem to have forgotten that lesson very frequently in terms of teaching people self-advocacy skills and the right to say no. I think it's one of the places that makes this really hard uh, for our field because we know all of these lessons, even from other, from things like abduction research, right? That just because I say I'm gonna do it doesn't mean that under these conditions, I'm actually going to do this. Um, and sometimes we can teach some of these skills in really real ways that I can make sure that you run out of the bathroom screaming and I can make sure that you're not, you know, taking your clothes off in the middle of a public place when you get something wet or, you know, but when we start to think about more complex social skills, I can't always test some of those things. Some of those things become very private, you know, close personal things that I have no business <laughs> having anything to do with. Um, and I think as, as, you know, as people that look for observable changes in behavior, that's where we sort of are stumped and we don't really know what to do now. Um, and I, again, I don't have great answers at some of the stuff that I'm, I'm kind of working on or hoping to work on, but it's, it's hard, I think. You know, I think it's it's hard, and I think logistically some of these things are hard, right? It, not everybody um, not everybody can always access a stranger enough times that's still a stranger to do these things. Um, and I think we need to talk a little bit more about the challenges of making sure that these are skills that are actually going to happen when they need to happen. Some of those also mean you need to practice this regularly because you may go your whole life and never have somebody follow you into a bathroom. You may go 15 years from when you were taught this before somebody follows you into a bathroom. And so making sure that, you know, we're continuing to, to test maintenance of some of these skills, I think is also something that, you know, we think, okay, so you maintained it for a couple of months after I taught it, check that off of my data sheet and move on. Um, and we don't necessarily think about, okay, can you still do this thing I taught you three years ago? Um, and so I, I think if we could all get better at talking about the ways that we're not great at doing these things or some of the challenges we have, then, then as a field, we can get better at brainstorming ways to, to work around those things or problem solve some of those things. Um, so it's, it's all complicated for sure. 
And one more complication I would just want to throw in, forgive me. Um, we also shouldn't make the assumption that everybody, and I'm going to use a term from uh, the sex education and therapy literature, is vanilla. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, vanilla derives from Baskin Robbins uh, ice cream parlor. You walk in, there's 31 flavors, and you order vanilla. Boring. You call us perverts, we call you vanilla. Those of us, uh, and I say that because I found myself one day on the Kinkaware Professionals site. I had no idea that I was a Kinkaware professional, but apparently I am somebody nominated and somebody put me in. There is this Kinkaware professional role, and apparently I'm a Kinkaware professional. Yay me. Uh, however, I was stumped one day, I have to admit. Uh, I was at my summer camp that we would do three weeks up in the Adirondacks, and I had one late teenager who obviously was getting very sexually excited at particular times and causing, you know, some issues as so doing in public. And I couldn't quite figure it out. You know, again, you know, behavior analysts, we pride ourselves on our ability to do functional analyses and things. And this one, I got to be honest, I was having a little trouble with. And finally, after some really meticulous detective work, I discovered that my young man was very attracted to women who were smoking. Now, that just wasn't a fetish you could have when I was a kid because smoking was so ubiquitous, you'd go through your life excited. I was delivered by a doctor who was smoking. Uh, my mother's Mahjong game used to take down four cartons in an evening. Uh, they were so busy, they were wasted on amphetamines, you know, fitting its hip huggers and go-go boots in the 70s. But they, that would be the Mahjong game. They would play all night and smoke down cigarettes, and it was just ubiquitous. You couldn't get away from it. Now, cigarette smoking isn't as common, and, you know, now it's become alluring because it's not as, uh, you know, just everywhere as it used to be. But, again, just returning to the topic... We all have our own individual sexual expressions, uh, which again, we can talk about, you know, anything from gender conforming through paraphilia, through, you know, partialisms, which is, you know, the term when you're excited by a part of the body that isn't generally considered sexual within the subculture. So technically a foot fetish, even though that rolls off the tongue well, no pun intended, should actually be called a foot partialism. Uh, there's a whole wide world out there and not everybody's gonna be vanilla. And that includes our guys, and they have every right to be as kinky as the rest of us. So uh, again, just another layer of complication that we have to throw into what Jessica was talking about. Yeah, and there was a, a question related to some of the the recent comments. So I'm gonna I'm gonna flip where the questions are. So we since it fits with the theme of what's being discussed. Uh, the question is, if we're discussing sexual abuse prevention, can there also be a discussion about the probability that the potential perpetrator will actually be known to the individual? Uh, this makes frameworks related to how we act with family versus strangers very murky and potentially dangerous, especially for black and white learners. Uh, do you have any response to that? Well, again, that'll go back to, say, for example, in the taking care of myself curriculum where there is that list. Now, of course, we have to be really careful about who winds up on that list. Um, and I am, again, not going to lie and say that it's always the easiest thing in the world to maintain. Um, I have had a lot of adults come to programs that I was working with who were not completely toilet trained or through physical illness wound up having messes or what have you. And now somebody who's not on the list is helping to clean. Um, things got a little murky there. Uh, we're always going to have difficulties there. And this is also an element of garbage in, garbage out, in the sense that if we have people on the list who 
should be trustworthy and are not, well, we're dead in the water to begin with. Um, and unfortunately, since the statistics do tell us that many people are abused by people closer to them as opposed to strangers, um, got to be bloody well sure of who should be on that list and who shouldn't. And uh, again, it can get very, very murky, not going to lie about it. Um, yeah, I, I think, again, <laughs> it's not easy. Um, I struggle with teaching absolutes, even though that's the way that is often the easiest for, for some of our learners that are on the spectrum or, or with an ID or DD. Um, where possible, I, I would try um, with learners that are able, I, I try to teach things that you're looking for, things that you feel, you know, so, as opposed to a hard, you, you know, this person is okay, this person is not okay, this person fits in your circle, they're fine, this person doesn't, they're, they're not, because of exactly what Bobby just said, people, it's not, it's not static, it's transient, and there's very few people that that really is absolutely static, they are, they've always got you, um, and so I, you know, if possible, that, that's my first choice, is to try to teach, you know, how do you know you can trust somebody? How do you know that's a person that can come in? How do you know, you know, what, what other measures are in place? How do you, what kinds of questions can you ask? Um, silly things, you know, I, again, I don't know what it's like uh, for men when they have a physical or in the States, but here, because I'm a woman, if I have a physical at the point that they are doing, you know, a, a breast exam or a pap test, my male doctor has a female nurse come in. Um, always, my whole life. Uh, so, you know, starting to teach things like, can I ask for this? Can I ask for somebody else? Or can I, you know, what, where is my say in this? I also think the flip side of that, which is, which is less um, positive to talk about, is I have, I have very strong feelings about teaching accurate recall of information, um, being able to tell people things about your day, being able to recognize the kinds of things that are noteworthy events, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of learners on the spectrum that come back and say things like, you know, how was your day? And they say, oh, I had lunch and math and gym every single day, um, you know, and, and can't tell you we had a fire drill at school. Somebody threw up in the hallway, you know, being able to identify what's the kind of thing that you should come home and tell a parent about and being able to do that, I think are some of those skills that I meant earlier about we should be teaching that to young kids so that when they are adolescents and adults, they can already start to recognize things that stand out um, as things that at least if they've happened, they, they know, you know, is the kind of thing they should bring forth to somebody. If there's somebody that doesn't have sort of the, the language skills or the cognitive skills to learn, you know, how do I make these decisions or what am I looking for in people, then I keep that circle of people real small. Um, that list is as small as I can. Um, and and your cues that somebody else can come in are that they, they come with one of those people on that list. So if you're now in a situation where you have a, you know, a health emergency and, and Bobby's example, then that person is coming in at least the first couple of times with my mom. Um, so at least that's, that's my cue that that's okay. But um, it's scary for sure. And we should also try to build in whatever safeguards we can. Uh, and forgive me for everybody here. I'm just gonna have to get real world on you. Real, just forgive me. That this is just real world. I am a huge advocate of having cameras and other sorts of things in settings and 
one of my very best friends in the world is a unicorn. Uh, she's a speech therapist and a BCBA. But in this case, the relevant individual is her husband, who is a lawyer who was representing a young woman who was raped by her staff at the group home that she lived. Other staff saw it and nobody reported it. And they admitted in court, yes, I made a mistake. No, three plus three equals seven is, is a mistake. Watching a person with a developmental disability get sexually abused and doing nothing to stop it or even to report it, that's a criminal act. That's not a mistake. And stuff's going to happen in terms of people making their way through the screening process, the fingerprinting process, the whole thing. It's unavoidable. If we know that people are vulnerable, we need to take every step humanly possible to safeguard their safety until they're able to advocate for themselves and defend themselves. And if they're not in a position where they're able to advocate or defend themselves, then we have to be there to back them up. And forgive me if that seems like an overly protective attitude, but I've just seen too much over the last few decades that, damn it, I never want to see it again. You know, it just, it, that should go without saying. I don't think it's an overly protective attitude. And I think it's a perfect statement for this show, which is how it has to be said. And I think you said it uh, perfectly. It's unfortunate that that kind of stuff is occurring. Uh, this will be the final question of the night. And once again, from the audience. So thank you for everybody in the audience who is asking the questions. It makes Joe and my life a little easier and it makes it more interactive. And I appreciate it. If you're listening to this on uh, the podcast, then come to the other shows so you can ask your questions. Uh, this question is, uh, is the following. How do you suggest navigating cultural differences with regards to sexuality and sex education, specifically when guardians are opposed to teaching or exposing their, their child uh, to sex or sex education or sexuality? Do you wanna handle that first, Jessica? Would you like me to take a stab at it? Uh, I, I can go. Um, that's actually the, the very first experience I had as a behavior analyst that really kind of sparked this in me was a was a similar situation. It was a, uh, a 13 year old kid who was in a Catholic school here and was going around saying to other kids, uh, I want to have sex with you. And when I talked to, you know, his parents and the, the principal of the school and you know, I said, do you think he even knows what that means? And they said, no. And the principal of the school said that it's a good thing because what he will learn in sex ed in June, then very end of the school year always, is that sex is a gift that a married man and married woman give each other. And it took every ounce of professionalism in me to say, okay, first of all, this kid thinks a gift is like a wrapped present under his Christmas tree. So the idea of you know, this concept as a gift is, is certainly not something that you know, is, gonna, is gonna be an easy concept for him to understand. And secondly, that's not true. Um, and so he, you know, he said, yeah, I, uh, obviously, yes, I know, but we're a Catholic school and that's part of our values and that's what we teach. And I said, I understand that, but you hit the key word for me, you hit values. Um, and so it's, it's very difficult to be, you know, um, culturally humble and respectful and be able to, to manage some of those conversations. Um, I talk a lot about I mean, I'm very fortunate in my own practice because I, I get a lot of kids when they're younger. Um, and so we talk a lot about some of those skills that I talked about earlier that don't sound like sexuality skills, but I think really are early 
um, sexual safety skills. And so we talk about, you know, how do you lead into some of those things? And you know that a lot of these skills, when you're talking about broad parts of this, like self-advocacy, like understanding social, you know, roles and not stalking people. And, you know, a lot of this is not just related to sex as it as a whole. Some of these are just broad safety skills or social skills. And so, you know, sometimes we talk about that sort of from those perspectives as well. Um, and really trying to separate out, you know, can I teach your child the, the fact? And can, can we also, you know, talk about the values of that? Um, and, and where some of the pros and cons of both of those things are. Sometimes that goes really well, and sometimes it doesn't. And uh, if I can just add to that, um, sometimes this gets to be very stark, and forgive me, uh, this is real life that we're dealing with, and we always want to be respectful of the uh, people that we are working with and the cultural backgrounds that they're coming from, uh, but we also have to look out for the safety and well-being of the clients in our charge, and so I tend to be very blunt about this. And again, just having had the life that I've had, I wind up saying to the family, I'm trying to look out for his safety as well as everything else. I was once called to a hospital for a young man who looked like he'd had his face rubbed back and forth on a chain link fence. And the reason he looked like that is because he had his rubbed face rubbed back and forth on a chain link fence. He had been exposing himself at the schoolyard. No, he wasn't. He was at the playground because, again, infantilizing, people took this boy to the playground and he was too old for the equipment there, but he was having trouble with his zipper. And since we were all so uncomfortable that nobody ever taught him about this, now he's adjusting his pants in front of the, the, the little kids at the seesaw and some parents decided to meet out some vigilante justice before the police got there. I have also been called into situations of incest. Um, Again, a complicated situation where a younger girl, a uh, 13-year-old girl or so, who was less impaired than her older brother, who actually was undiagnosed on the autism spectrum, uh, when I visited him during his interrogation was when I realized, oh boy, uh, I'm going to be dropping some bombs here. Uh, because this guy was, again, as Asperger's as the day is long, forgive me, but I guess because his sister was so much more impaired, everyone just kind of ignored his stuff. And she was actually the aggressor. And he didn't know what to do about it. And not having the social skills himself. And this ended up in a whole, what the DA called Sophie's Choice, which I actually had to look up what that meant. But um, again, I, I don't hesitate to scare people. And I hate to say it because this can have very strong implications. And while we do want to be respectful of everybody's cultural backgrounds, we also have to make sure that people are prepared for what life is going to throw at them. And I really do try to advocate for my clients in terms of if this is something that I think they desperately need to have, then I really try to get the permission uh, just by laying out exactly what can go very, very, very wrong if we don't do this instruction. So uh, forgive me if that makes me not a nice person. Uh, you know, it's not the first thing. I think that's the best kind of person. <laughs> that's the kind of person I would want working with my kids. And I, and I try to think of that. And I hope that's what well. we're getting. 
I, I have two teenage girls and I, oh, thank I you. think of that often when I work with families to think, you know, look, my job is to tell you what I know. I, if, if my child, you know, had some health concern or something that I know nothing about, I would expect that the professionals that are working with them can tell me everything that they need to know. And that includes all of the risks. And so that's my job. I need to make sure that you know everything about this. And usually, um, usually they come around at least, you know, at least in a baby step. And then that gives me something else I can, I can kind of work from. So. Well, we're in the unfortunate time that we're at an hour and uh, I want to be respectful of your time and everybody's time. I think this was just a great way to start off. It has to be said a uh, podcast for us. I thought it was so informative, so educational. I have two and a half pages of notes uh, that I was taking from what you guys were saying. And I would encourage audience members, whether you're uh, live or if you're listening on podcasts to continue your education on this. I think this is just like a, a brief intro into it. And I would go to the, the, the conferences that are occurring. I would go to go to the, uh, the, the SIG ABAI. I would go to the talks in ABAI about this. I would, go to, I would encourage that uh, regional conferences have more talks on this uh, from a variety of people. I think this is really important stuff that is not being talked about enough, uh, especially compared to other stuff that is being talked about. And so um, I think this is a great area to go. So uh, Bobby and Jess, thank you so much for agreeing to do this, especially you guys are on the East Coast side of things. So it's later for you than it is uh, for Joe and I, uh, but we appreciate it so much and it was so informative. Well, thank, thank you for having me. For having me. And, and now Joe will end with the boring thing. Yeah, um, I, I also want to, to echo Justin and thank you for, for being here and sharing your time and, and your valuable knowledge with everybody. Uh, if you are looking for CEUs for this, you can get them from www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Uh, just add this one to your cart, check out and put in the opening and the closing words. The closing word for this one is PEPA, P-E-P-A. Oh, and I was going with battery, don't it? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Sorry. Thank you for thank you for coming. We'll see you. Uh, remember, we do this now monthly, so we'll see you in the month of July. I believe we're having Wafa Al Jahani is the current plan uh, to awesome. talk about uh, talk about cultural uh, cultural and cultural sensitivity and cultural uh, training and education. So we look forward to that in the month of July. Uh, for now, see you from it has to be said with Justin and Joe. Yeah.